Today we're in this, this uh, continuing on in this, this series, part two, called Against All Odds. Against All Odds. And as I said last week, the, the aim of this series is really simple. Uh, the aim is for us to look inward at who we believe God is, particularly when we face an overwhelming predicament in life. Last week we talked about how ultimately the most important thing about you, A.W. Tozer said, is what you believe about God. Our understanding of who God is not only shapes how we live our lives, but also grounds us, roots us in who we are in Christ. So if you buy into that with me, then uh, last week we talked about how through this series we're going to ask two questions over and over together. And these two questions are this, up on the screen here. One, what problem or setback or difficulty have you been facing in your life? And two, who do you believe God to be in the midst of that predicament? Uh, I was watching the news early this week, um, and, and I came across uh, this, this newscast. I'd give it this theme. Uh, if I could describe it in one word, I would say Chaos. You've probably seen the same images throughout the week. Riots, shootings, buildings burning down. And of course, all this we know is taking place as political candidates are running their ads and interrupting the storylines. But somewhere in the midst of this newscast, those two questions popped into my head. What story is being told right now? What is the problem? And Ryan, who do you believe God to be in the midst of this? And the answer to these questions, particularly when we face our own personal life struggles, matter, right? Because these answers eventually lead us somewhere, either to fear and to anger and to pride, or to faith and to quietness and peace. St. Augustine once said it like this. He said, our souls will never find rest. Our hearts will never find rest until we rest in him. And so this morning, we're going to take all that goodness that we learned last week, and we're just going to apply another layer to it. Just a whole other layer of goodness. And to do that, we're going to open up our Bibles to the book of Judges. We're going to turn to chapter 6 here in a minute. I want to set this up, though, because I want to introduce you to this man named Gideon. Anybody heard of Gideon before? Gideon was this God-appointed leader known as a judge in the midst of an all-out national crisis. And when we hear the word judge, what do we often think of? We think of a man or a woman in a robe, right, behind a bench. Um, That's not Gideon. Uh, The word judge in the Bible means deliverer. It means warrior or general or savior. So don't think justice of the peace. Think like Rambo, okay? You with me? All right, here's the context of the story. Uh, Let me just set this up. God made this promise to Israel to give them a land that was flowing in abundance. And after these decades of struggle, they finally arrived to this land. But there's a real problem, and that is that the land is scattered with enemies. And in fact, the Bible tells us God handed Israel over to the enemy because of their lack of obedience to him. And at this particular chapter in Judges, the enemy is the Midianites. God's word tells us they had come up on Israel like a field full of locusts. Their intent was to destroy all the crops and the culture of God's people. And almost in an instant, Israel became overcome and overwhelmed and now occupied by this foreign adversary. So as a result, God's people have lost nearly everything. In fact, the nation had had run up into the hillside, hiding into caves just to protect what they had left. Israel falls to their knees in the midst of this national disaster, and they make this collective plea to the Lord 
And God hears their prayer and their repentance, and now he raises up this deliverer, this judge named Gideon. And here's how this went down. One day, Gideon's out on this threshing floor. Or out in, I'm sorry, out threshing wheat in a wine press, okay? And, and picture, I want you to picture a big colander, and he's at the bottom of this colander. And, and he's doing this in order to hide his goods, hide his wheat from the enemy. And the angel of the Lord shows up to him with this really flattering greeting. Look at this, in, uh, if you have your Bibles open, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Isn't that a title? Mighty man of bravery. Now just consider the irony for a minute. Gideon is inside of a wine press hiding his wheat from the enemy. He's cowering. And Gideon knows this irony full well. In 6.13, he says, time out. Why is, if God is for me, if God is for Israel, why is this happening to us? Let's just skip the titles and get to the details. Where are all of his wonderful deeds? And from this point forward, we find this man who is chosen by God, whose greatest struggle and biggest hindrance in following the Lord from this point forward is trusting in God's promise in his life. And our scripture this morning is the crescendo of that story. Gideon's about to go to battle against the Midianites, but he's completely outgunned, he's completely outmanned, and he's completely unsure. And here's the fun part. We're going to learn that's right where God wants him. Because in this singular moment, God is about to prove his power and a might in a way that Gideon could have never even imagined. Okay, that was kind of a long introduction. The story is a bit lengthy too, but this is epic. I promise it's going to be worth it. So turn your Bibles to Judges 6. We're going to begin at chapter 6, verses 36. Let's hear God's word. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you just said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone who I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. 
And the Lord said to Gideon, with those 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions into their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that it lay the tent flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard of the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of them, and empty jars with torches inside them. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and a hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of watch when they had just set watch and they blew their trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrades and against the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta and Zerirah, as far as the border of Albel Mahola and Tabith. And isn't that an epic story? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Stuart McAllister is probably a name you've never heard of before, but his impact on the kingdom is known worldwide. Stuart was a missionary in Czechoslovakia, and his primary task was to smuggle Bibles from Austria across the border into the communist nation. That is until one fateful night when he got caught. He and his buddy were thrown into prison and left for days. It wasn't long before Stuart lost all sense of time and reality. The light above his head was always on. The food was horrible. Cellmates terrifying. He had no idea if it had been weeks or months. This is what he wrote about his experience. This moment has forced us to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe in spite of the evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions of our minds as our expectations in reality do not match? For me, in my time in prison, I expected God to do things and to do them in a sensible way in time. I expected that God would act fairly and quickly, that I would sense his intervention 
my reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word, the teaching I had received and the message I had embraced had led me to expect certain things in a particular way. And when none of this occurred, as I expected, or in the timing that I thought it should, I was confused and angry. Here's the part I want you to remember. This is how he ended his memoir. Look at this. He said, a worldview that merely answers questions intellectually is insufficient. It must also meet us existentially where we live. Here's why I share that story. Um, I think in one way or another, we can all relate to this, can we not? Whether it's Gideon who's hiding in a wine press or missionaries in prison or our own struggles in life, from an early age, we all hear these famous words, Jesus loves me, this I know. But when the wind and the waves begin to batter the ship, those words in our faith are tested. I think so often in life we accidentally paint a a picture of God that isn't real, right? It's not biblical at all. We either expect fulfillment of promises that he never made, or we have expectations of him that are entirely out of line with who he is. And when we have that false picture of God suddenly shattered and that bubble burst, our faith is shaken. And so this morning we come across this man, Gideon, who in his desperation, existentially, he can't wrap his mind around God's goodness because what he sees in his life does not give him proof. If God is with us, why is this happening? Ever ask that question? In fact, our scripture lesson begins with Gideon playing out this really crazy test with God. Um, the Lord had told him, I'm going to use you to deliver, uh, d- d- deliver Israel from this enemy. And Gideon intellectually hears this, but it hasn't hit him here. The, the army is so massive, you can't count it. So Gideon comes to the Lord with this test. He says, I'm going to lay out this fleece on the threshing floor. And he tells God, in the morning, if there's dew on it, and it's dry all around, then I'll believe you. Now think about me, with me for a minute about God's patience and mercy in this moment. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And despite this request that shows us Gideon's complete lack of faith, he wakes up the next morning and wrings out the fleece soaking wet. And here's the insane part, though. It's not enough, right? Because we all know that a, a, a piece of, of, of animal fleece will stay wet far longer than the ground. So what if this is just a coincidence, God? Gideon comes to the Lord a second time. He knows he's testing boundaries. God, don't get angry with me. Let's do it the reverse this time. Make all the dirt wet. Keep the fleece dry. He wakes up the next morning through a mud puddle and the fleece is dry as a bone. Let me just get nerdy with you for a minute. Um, throughout the book of Judges, the, the word for God time and time again is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that was too sacred for the Hebrew people to use aloud. It was, it was a name of endearment, of, of deep, consecrated relationship with the Lord. But for some reason, in this moment, in this testing, the Hebrew word shifts to Elohim. Elohim is the generic name for God. If Yahweh is a proper noun, then Elohim is a common noun. It's almost as if in this moment, the, the scriptures want us to see that Gideon doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't really understand who he's even talking with. Let me just ask our two questions again. What problem or setback difficulty are you wrestling with? And who is God in that predicament? When I was about seven years old, my family went on a road trip down to see my grandparents in, uh, in New Mexico. 
And the unspoken goal of any road trip in our house with me and my brothers was to see who could provoke who to a fist fight halfway through a trip. Anybody else's family work that way? This trip started out a little bit different though. Somewhere along the way, my brothers both fell asleep. And I had this yellow cassette player in the seat pocket in front of me and I, I pulled this thing out, put my earbuds on and I hit the play button. And this song that I was listening to, it went something like this, came from my Sunday school. Lord, you are more precious than silver. You are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds and nothing I desire compares with you. Anybody remember that song? I'm sure I had heard it a dozen times, but for some reason in that moment, those lyrics seared into my soul. I hit the rewind button, listened to it again. I was like, man, what does that mean? Nothing I desire compares with this God. I hit the rewind button again and again, listening to it over and over again. It's almost as if time stood still in that minute. Eight hours of a drive, I can still pinpoint the rock alongside the road where I was. And out of nowhere, these tears start falling down from my face. It was almost as if for the first time in my life, the reality of who God was went from here to here. More precious than silver, more costly than gold. What does that even mean? And as I'm processing this and kind of ugly crying at this point, my older brother wakes up, slugs me in the arm, says, what's the deal with the crybaby in the back seat? Psalm, Proverbs 8, 11, the wisdom of the Lord is more precious than rubies. Psalm 19, 10, the decrees of the Lord are more precious than gold. Psalm 24, 7, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I would seek after to gaze upon his beauty. See, in that moment, I knew who God was. It was a life-changing, path-shifting, earth-shattering kind of existential moment for me where everything shifted from head to heart. And yet, if I'm honest, if we're honest, I've had countless times in my life since that day where I come to the same God who time and time again has proven his faithfulness and all I have is doubt. Anybody else relate to that? Lord, are you still with me? If so, why is this happening? What do we do with that? Or maybe we know, cognitively speaking, that God is with us, but we can't get it to our heart and we hesitate. Look at how this plays out. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn back to chapter 7, verse 2. Just as Gideon is at the peak of his doubt, the Lord ups the ante. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And he tells Gideon, remove the ranks. Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him go home. 22,000 soldiers walk off the battlefield, 10,000 remain. Now, they're overwhelmed, but Gideon might still have a fighting chance. That is until God brings him part two. He says, now send the men that you have left down to the water for a drink. Anyone who laps the water like a dog, we'll, send, we'll use them for battle. Anyone who kneels, we'll send home. Now, just picture that for a minute. The men who are lapping water like dogs, that sloppy army, that's who God's going to use for this battle. Gideon looks out over this enemy as far as the eye can see, and there's no way. It's not possible. God knows he's still struggling with doubt, so he sends this terrified man on a recon mission. We know it. We know he's terrified because he said, you can bring your servant if you're scared. So certainly he did. Gideon and Purah, they crawl down into this enemy encampment in the middle of the night, and he hears two soldiers talking. One of them says, I just dreamed a dream. 
He says, a loaf of barley came rolling into the camp of Midian, crushed it flat. What does it mean? And as Gideon listens in, he hears the enemy comrades say, I think God has given Midian into Gideon's hand. Now let me just ask the obvious question for a minute. Why was God's word not enough? Why is that? Why was God's promise not enough? Why did it take a mere man, the enemy of all people, to convince Gideon that this was true? See, I'm just guessing, but it seems to me that it was all up here. That God's word had never hit here. And this is the most important part of this morning. Um, Gideon hears this man, and the scriptures tell us in an instant he fell on his knees in worship. Do you see that? As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He goes from this intellectual practice of trusting God, of testing God, of, of struggling in his faith, to an all-out release in worship to him. That's what God does with our doubt. And our weakness, that's where we find God's strength. And our struggles, that's where we find victory. And he gives us this promise by his very word that whatever battle you're facing, the war's already won. You have victory in Christ. And it's from that moment of worship that everything starts to change. That Gideon finds the courage to face his enemy again. It's in that moment of worship that he steps back into God's plan for his life. It's in that moment of worship that he recalibrates who he is as the man of valor that God has called him to be. And Gideon is now so certain of his promise that not one man in his entire army brings a weapon to battle. Did you catch that? Look at this. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them with empty jars and torches inside. That's no way to win a war. In the middle of the night, they surrounded the camp, blew their trumpets, smashed the jars. I mean, you talk about an act of faith. The enemy turns in on themselves, cries out and fleds, flees. And before it even began, the battle was over. That's the picture of us, right? I mean, whatever battle you're facing this morning, whatever struggle you're in, the, the war that you find yourself facing, it's already been won. And if like Gideon, I think we all find ourselves asking, why is this happening? Lord, are you still here? Let me confidently remind you of this. He is. That's how we know what love is. Christ died for us, and we don't need a dream. We have the cross. Jesus said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And if he's with us, then he's for us. And if he's for us, then we worship. So this morning, this is my invitation. My invitation is to let God meet you right where you are, wherever he finds your heartbeat. Whatever trial you're facing, struggle you're into, whatever doubts you have in this moment, leave it with him. Trust in the good news of his word and worship once more. Let me pray for us. God, we do bring to you our doubts and our struggles, our sorrows, our pain, our confusion. Lord, we are but human. And yet you are the God who was and is and is to come. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the definition of love, life everlasting. And so God, we bring ourselves, our broken selves to you in worship this morning. Lord, we pray, remove doubt. Remove our questions, remove our hesitations. God, would you help us to earnestly seek you? And as we worship you in this moment,
God, would you lead us this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.